Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. There are some days that I really wish I were going to Kingdom Kids. <laughs> Today's not one of those days. I'm happy to get up here and speak. So, Our Lord Jesus, in the book of Luke chapter 14, verse 28, said, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first down, sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build, but was not able to finish. Jesus is talking about in this passage the importance of recognizing what it means to truly follow Christ. We live in a world, in a a day and age, where it's easy to receive the Lord and hard to follow him. But those two things are artificially separated. We live in a world, many churches will proclaim that all we must do and all we are required to do is to say a simple set of words. And once we've done that, we are now exempted from the punishment and condemnation of what our sins have deserved. Never once talking about the importance of placing our trust in the one who saved us. Never once suggesting that we should live differently, not because we're earning our salvation in any way, but because the God who earned it for us, Jesus, calls us to a new way to live. And so I have run across many people in my life who have made at some point in their lives a profession of faith. They went to a, a um, uh, maybe an evangelistic event, or they went to a church that someone invited them to, or they heard something on the radio that seemed to stir something in their heart, and they make something of a profession. They realize they want that. They realize that this is something that they should be doing, and they fall into the trap of what has often been termed as easy believism. The idea that all we must do is say some words and go about our day. And what ends up happening is you create a false sense of safety. A sense that I'm okay because I said these words, so now I can continue to live any way that I choose. But Jesus calls us to something more. And so we see in the world today, particularly in the Western church, a whole series of ravaged lives that either believe they're okay because of what they have once said or believe they're not in need at all. There's ruins everywhere. Do you see it? Ruins. We're talking about ruins in our series in Nehemiah. We're talking about what it means to rebuild the pieces of a sin-ravaged world, either in the communities and lives around us, the world around us where God is working, or in our very hearts. 
Because the truth is, is we have plenty to rebuild here by the power of the Spirit with our eyes fixed on Jesus as there is in the world around us. Many of these projects have started and many have failed. Consider in your own life. Perhaps there's a troublesome sin, a habit, a pattern of thinking, behaving, feeling that you promise yourself again and again that you're not going to do the next time. And so you marshal every human resource that you have at your disposal, your will, your Christian ability and intellect and knowledge. All of the time in the world, you place adjuncts in your life that prevent you from being in the sort of situation that will incite this type of behavior, thought, or feeling. And yet, all of it in the end seems to be meaningless because we have not counted the cost of what it really means, of what it really takes to let go of everything, to surrender everything, and to look to Christ for our salvation. What does it mean to look to Christ as we're struggling in the day-to-day world of our hearts to rebuild the ruins of sin in the world around us? I guess that's a whole other way of saying it's easy to go off half-cocked. It's easy to say this has to get fixed, run out with great temerity, and to decide I'm going to change things and then fail, and then Satan loves to use those failures as evidence against us in his suit saying that we are not the Christians that we think we should be or we say that we are. So we must use caution and wisdom. And in this passage today, we're going to see how Nehemiah, in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, does this very thing. We need to know this. If we don't understand this, we will lose our joy in the process of the rebuilding. We can become an object of derision. Look, they tried and failed, just like Jesus said. We allow our failures to inform our self-image. Oh, you've tried this before. It didn't work. You're nothing but a failure. But if we proceed with wisdom and caution in the area that God is calling us to address through this series, through his word, these areas of sin-ravaged destruction in our hearts and in our society, if we do so with caution, but intention and wisdom, we'll see God overcoming amazing things. We'll experience the joy of partnering with the God who is on the move and actively seeking to change things. Do you realize that? Do you see that? That God is wanting things to be different. He started it with his son Jesus and he's working through you now. What is he calling you to do? What is he calling you to rebuild? So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're in verse 9. We're going to read through 20 today. This is how it starts, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. So Nehemiah has been sent from Susa with his letters, with his resources, and he's moving west towards Judah, which is called beyond the river, by the way, the province beyond the river. And now he's there. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek after the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem 
and was there three days. We have three new characters that have been introduced in our storyline. The first one is Sanballat the Horonite. We're going to read all about this guy. He's going to keep popping his head up like whack-a-mole again and again and again, along with him and his other two little cronies here. Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat the Horonite probably was of Moabite origin, okay? He was not a a Hebrew from the nation of Israel. He was from Moab, southeast of Israel, just across the Dead Sea. He was an official of the Persian Empire in the province beyond the river. So everywhere that this empire owned beyond the, uh, the river Euphrates, okay, which included the area of Judah and Israel. Sanballat the Horonite. Turns out there was a whole family of Sanballats. There were all these officials for the king of Persia located in Israel, but they were of Moabite descent. The second guy is Tobiah the Ammonite. Tobiah the Ammonite. Ammon is located east of Jerusalem. It's the present-day capital of Jordan. And according to the book of Genesis, both Ammon and his half-brother Moab, so Sanballat's family as well, descended from Lot in a very sordid situation in Genesis 19. We won't get into it, okay? We'll just say that the argument here is that these two people groups descended from very questionable unions, okay? Um, So suffice it to say that there was intense animosity between Jews and Moabites, Jews and Ammonites. And then thirdly, we're going to see later on uh, in this passage a little bit further, Jeshem the Arab. Not much mention of Arabs in the Old Testament, so it's impossible to know exactly what land they were from or which direction, probably east, probably in the land of what's present-day Saudi Arabia or eastern Jordan. Uh, They were a nomadic people, and this is who Jeshem descends from. Now, there's some argument that that they descended from the people of Ishmael, and there is another argument that they descend from Moab, or from Esau, so to the east of the, the Dead Sea. Suffice all this to say, these were not people who were friendly towards Israel, okay? And Israel, frankly, was not friendly towards them because again and again, there was this animosity between these other, people's group, other people groups in the nations, nation of Israel. So now... Nehemiah is going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, and it's populated and filled with the enemies of Israel. All right? This is something important to know, because when we are interacting with people in the world, sin-ravaged world, when we're interacting with the sin in our own heart and trying to rebuild the pieces, we have enemies too. We have enemies too. We can expect opposition, that those who are going to seek to destroy us, to prevent us from moving on on the path that the Lord Jesus calls us to move on. They're going to seek to prevent us from rebuilding the very things that God is calling us to rebuild. But as is being described here in the beginning, they have no legitimate claim. They have no legitimate claim. Verse 12. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. 
Then I went up by the night, by the valley, and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were about to do the work. The first point that we need to see, the first lesson we can understand here from how Nehemiah approached this situation is he assessed his ruins before he started working. He assessed his ruins before he started working. It's easy to just get up and go off half-cocked, to just start serving anywhere, to just start doing anything because we confuse effort with results. We say, if I can try harder, if I can invest more energy, if I can only pray harder, read more Bible harder, go to church harder, then I will be okay. What God is calling us to do is to think carefully and to inspect with intentionality and wisdom exactly what is going on. I don't know about you, but in my life, there's certainly been times where I recognized there was an area of ruin that needed to be addressed, but I didn't want to address it. I'm sure you can relate to this. But instead of addressing the real issue, we make new ones. Or we enlist all of our resources and marshal them against some other issue in our lives in an attempt to fix the real problem. But we don't. We don't take a good look exactly at what is going on and assume that if we work harder, things will get better. Nehemiah here is walking a tightrope of considerations. As he circles the city and he's inspecting the walls, he's thinking about everything that's at play. The opposition, who are already there and saying they're unhappy. The volunteers, who he's going to have to enlist to help work. The scope of the work and tremendous amount of labor that's going to have to go into it. How is he managing his communication, not only with those who are going to serve with him, but those who are seeking to stop it all? Nehemiah is under a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Good thing he's a man of prayer. Good thing he knows that the power for him to accomplish these elements in Jerusalem don't come from him. That God has placed a desire in his heart and God will give him the resources to achieve it. Nehemiah's action in going around the city to inspect the walls display a set of principles that we would be smart to pay attention to in assessing the ruins in our own lives. First, he took the time. Many of us just don't take the time. There are reasons that you continue to sin in the ways that you do, and it's not just because you're a sinner. Ultimately, that's the base cause. But we all have patterns and fears and lies and presuppositions about the world around us that inform the way we see ourselves in the way we see God. If we're not careful in assessing and taking the time of understanding the lay of the land, trying to understand where the walls of our heart are damaged, where the ruins need to be rebuilt, we're going to focus on the wrong things. Second Nehemiah inspected with caution. He did it in secret at night when no one knew where he was going. And he only took one animal so that not to stir up a fuss, 
that they wouldn't even know he was there. There's something in your life that God wants you to begin praying about now. There's going to be a time where you're going to rely on the people in your life and other believers to encourage you and love you and help you and partner with you in doing what God has called you to do. But right now he's calling you to get with him, to inspect the walls, to look at the rubble that is specific areas of your life or in your world around you and say, all right, what needs to be done, Lord? I'm I'm here. It's just me and you. No one else knows. It's just you and I. What is it that you want me to do? Nehemiah inspected the walls by faith. When you look at the gates and why, where he inspected in the order that he inspected, he only looks at about one-sixth or one-seventh of the whole circumference of the city of Jerusalem. He's not able to look at the entire city. At the end of the day, he doesn't have to. He's seen enough. There's a time where we begin to consider what it is God is asking us to do. We're with him in prayer, but there is a time to act. There's a time where we're not going to know all of the unknowns and God is calling us to step out in faith and entrust ourselves to the God who's not only placed this desire in our heart, but has promised to give us the resources we need to address it. Finally, he managed his communication well, similar to the doing things in secret. He did not share with those who would do the work immediately. He did not have all the info. I've learned, and hopefully my staff have learned, that I think out loud. When I say, you know what would be a great idea? It doesn't mean I'm making the decision that we should go do this, because sometimes I'll say things like, you know what we should do? We should totally revamp children's ministry and make it look like this instead of like this. And then our beloved director of children's ministry has learned to not take me too seriously. We manage our communication. We think about what it is we're sharing. We try to understand how is this going to hit the people around me who ultimately will have to partner with me in this work because premature communication can cause havoc. Havoc. It can further incite opposition. Many projects are fail before they start because people have shared what's going on in here too quickly with the wrong people. It can create fear in others. It leaves people to guess on their own. It's sometimes best to have as many facts as possible before sharing it with others. So while Nehemiah inspected, while Nehemiah did it in secret and managed communication and observed by faith and by intention, at the end of the day, he knew that inspection that all the inspection in the world was not going to get the job done. He had to take a step of action. Second piece, once we know what it is we're doing, once it is that God has revealed to us his plan and put it into our heart, we've inspected the ruins, we say, okay, Lord, I see that this is the area that needs to be addressed. We act. Second piece, enlist the help of others in rebuilding your ruins. Enlist the help of others in rebuilding your ruins. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. 
And they told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. You see, we live this life thinking that we can do things on our own. And we miss out on all of the value of the way God has created us and the church. We are called to be interdependent upon one another. It's not dependent. Dependent is, I need you to give me what I need. Interdependent says we need each other. That there is a blessing in that what I don't have, you have, and what you have, I don't have. And we work together in order to achieve God's outcome. We see it all the way back at the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit living as a unified whole, three persons, one God, in a blessed and perfect society, a relationship. As we walk out of, walk our Christian life out, as we're being restored to the image of God, it's not just being restored into Christ-likeness, it's being restored into something like the family of God. The image of God is displayed in the church as a whole. The fact that nobody here is unimportant, that every believer grafted into the body of Christ has a role and is needed, and we need them as much as they need us. The work in our lives is too great. The sin that created the rubble in the first place is too strong. It's too deep in our hearts to do this on our own. We demonstrate the very nature of the church when we do things together. Because the truth is, is that we need each other's protection. We need people to say, oh, danger, danger. I know you don't see this, but this is what's happening. We need encouragement. Come on, keep going. And sometimes we need rebuke. Knock it off. So how do we do this? How do we enlist the help? It's more than just asking. There's a way to ask. There's a way to encourage people to help us on our journey of rebuilding the ruins in our lives. First, we look at Nehemiah. We state the obvious. This is literally what he says. Come, look at Jerusalem. The walls are down, the gates are burned. He states reality as it is. He invites them to observe for themselves. We do this in our lives. We ask the people around us, this is what the Lord has put in my heart. I feel this is the thing he's calling me to do. Look at the situation. Do you see the situation like I do? Ask them to look at reality. Come to terms with the situation. Secondly, Nehemiah casts a vision. We talked about the disparity last week or the week before about the is and the ought. He's saying, take a look around. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not as good as it gets. We should not stay like this. There is a better reality out there. There is something new that God is calling us to, a restoration, a reconciliation. There's something out there that God is calling us to. So he casts the vision of a better reality. He said, come, let us, let us rebuild that we would no longer suffer derision. For the Jews, this would be deeply emotional. They would see the land that God had promised them. The land that would be theirs. Being overrun by those who had 
no claim to the land, living in the very place that was promised to them, worshiping on the same mountain that was promised to them, recognizing that it was their own disobedience that sent them out of the country and into the hand of the waiting enemy in exile. He says, come, come, let us rebuild and overcome the derision that we have. No, let us no longer suffer this derision. He casts a better reality. Third, Nehemiah is very honest about the scope of the work. This is something that's tempting in ministry when it's hard to get people to serve. This is not this church. You guys are great. It's easy to nickel and dime people. Hey, do you think you could do this? And people are afraid to say yes because they realize that there's 10 more things that are actually attached to that ask, right? Nehemiah is saying it just like it is. He's saying, come, we're going to rebuild the walls. Look how big the city is. It's not going to be an easy job. He doesn't nickel and dime them. He tells them exactly what it's going to take. And so Nehemiah asked with audacity. We recall that we are to ask God with audacity because God holds the resources to everything we need to accomplish anything he's called us to accomplish. And so when we ask for the help, we should ask with audacity. We should be clear about what it is we're asking people to do with us. But he didn't say, trust me, things are going to be okay. He encouraged them to look to God's grace and protection. He encouraged them and said, look, this is the hand, God's good hand upon us. This is what happened when I stood before the king. God's grace was upon us. We can do it in him because the truth is, is we can do everything right, but it not be successful because God's good hand is not in it. And finally, it says they strengthened our hands for the work. The NVI, um, or the Nueva Versión Internacional, the Spanish version of the Bible here says it in wonderful ways. He says, and they united action with word. There was a marriage that occurred. They didn't just talk. They got up, and once they made the decision, they acted. There's nothing worse than rousing speech that falls flat. Nehemiah put his money where his mouth was, encouraged them, and they did the same, standing up to do the work intentionally. We must be intentional because there are those who seek to disrupt the work and our heart, our sinful hearts are really levied against it. We do not really want to do the things that God is calling us to do because they often strike against our very identity. Verse 19. But when Sambalot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Jeshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Third point for this morning. Expect opposition to the work of rebuilding ruins. Anytime we do something of import for God, for the kingdom of God, we can expect opposition. We talk about this frequently. I, as a leader, have a target on my back. 
Satan wants to throw me off to throw you off. Strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep. When we step out by faith and we begin to do something new for the Lord, really, when we begin to stand in and walk in our God-given identity, Satan does everything he can to throw us off course. Satan will do whatever he can to create obstacles in our path, including using other people. They do not want us to be doing what God is calling us to do. Satan, in spiritual warfare, in the things that happen in our lives, to the subtle lies that we hear in our hearts, to the systems that we have to navigate, systems that are created by sinful people, the things we have to overcome to accomplish what it is God is calling us to do are all set against God's will. Others, they jeered at us and they despised us. They even levied false claims. What, are you going to rebel against the king? Who do you think you are? You're actually doing something sinful instead of something good. These three told Nehemiah and the Jews that they had some ulterior motive. Oh, you just want this. The fear, pride, and ignorance of others often get in the way. The scariest piece is it's often our fear, pride, and ignorance that get in the way. The self-doubts that say, you're not good enough for this work. Oh, you've tried in the past. Just let it be. This is as good as it gets. It's never going to get better. My favorite, this is the cross that God has given you to bear. So you just keep on in that sinful pattern. You just keep on walking by the rubbles of this social system that's broken. Never considering the lives of those people and what God is actually calling you to do. The discouragement. I've tried. It's nothing. It's no use. Or the overwhelm. I'm just a... I'm just a little guy. In this huge problem, what effect could I possibly have? But Christ. But Christ. We hear these voices. We know Satan's marshaled against us. We know there are others who would seek for their own comfort and benefit to prevent us from doing what it is God is calling us to do. And it's true where there's a lot of opposition. But Christ has overcome the world. That the spirit who lives in us is more powerful than the spirit that is in the world. The one who is our Savior has already one against the forces of darkness, the ignorance of people. And if you let him, the fear in your own heart. We keep our eyes on Christ and to the promises of God. Nehemiah said, God's good hand was upon me, that God will be with us, that God will achieve the work of rebuilding the walls. We fix our eyes there. We do the work. God from heaven did not somehow miraculously rebuild the walls. He uses us. But it was his strength and power that made it happen. It's the same in your life. So what do we do? How do we deal with opposition? One is we refuse to let other people's ridicule, hating, or jokes derail us. 
In the end, the only opinion that matters is Jesus. In the end, the only thing that matters is Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Christ, recognizing who we are in him because of what he's done for us drowns out the voices of those who would seek to make fun of us, to hate us. We answer the opposition with truth. I think this is especially true in our, the inward disposition of our heart to not want to step out in faith, to self-doubt, to discouragement. We say, no, God said. God said. We place that success in the hands of God. God has called me to rebuild these ruins. I'm going to step out in faith, but the outcome is his. Sometimes God is calling us to simply be faithful and to not measure our success in that faithfulness by human measure, by human outcomes. Perfect example is the prophet Isaiah. Stands before God, God sends him out on a mission trip and says, oh, by the way, no one's going to get saved. You're going to tell everybody about the truth and everyone is going to ignore you. And if that happens, you've been 100% successful. And you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. When we step out by faith, when we are doing a work for the Lord, when we are rebuilding ruins in our heart or in the world around us, we are not responsible for outcomes, God is. We're responsible for action. We're responsible for faithful obedience. And finally, we find our strength in God and among God's people. Nehemiah says, We, his servants. Not only are we servants of the Most High who holds all power, but we together are his servants. What if Grace Bible Church, and I think this is happening more and more, and I give glory to God, but what if people showed up to Grace? What if we came to this place and God used each other, each of us, in each other's lives to revolutionize our lives? What if God called us together as a family to walk through suffering and joy together? What if it was more than just showing up on Sunday morning, three songs, sermon, three songs? What if being a part of grace, what if being a part of the body of Christ here meant that when you showed up, that you could rely on each other to speak truth to you, to speak encouragement and love, to know that when everything's said and done, my family may fall away, the people in my friend group might deride me, I may have no one, but I have Christ and his people. What if grace looked like that? God wants it to look like that. Did you ever drive and have a daydream? You're just, you're way off in left field. You're just... I, I was having a daydream that it was the end times, okay? I'm like, oh man, we're in the middle of the tribulation. Like things get really bad. There's emergency alerts on the TV. Like it's, you know, every like sort of Armageddon movie that you see. Where would I be? First I thought, well, I would get Lane, I'd get Calvin and I'd get Daniel and everyone in the house and we'd crowd around and we'd pray or we'd be together or something. I felt the Lord say, that's only part of it. 
This is where we should be. Not in the church building, necessarily. This is where we should be. The family that God has given us, the brothers and sisters who God has blessed us with to walk this road together. Where else would I want to be? Here. So in talking about the ruins, talking about rebuilding, when you're stepping out and trusting God to have faith, to look at what's really happening in your heart and in the lives around you. Assess things before working. Know what it is that you're getting into. Enlist the help of others. Encourage one another. Look to one another. And expect opposition. Because Satan does not want this to happen. And you can rest assured that when you're feeling resistance to something, it probably means it's the right way to go. If you don't really want to step out and do something, it means it's probably the right way to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for, you know, all this just can sound exciting or it can be couched in this idea, Lord, of just motivational speaking. But Lord, we know that none of this is possible. None of it is impossible apart from your son Jesus and the death that he died on the cross for us. None of it is possible apart from the spirit who is in us because Christ died. Lord, make us hate that we try to do things in our own power. Lord, teach us to fix our eyes on your son. Teach us to fix our eyes on the one who has gone before us, the one who holds the keys to death in Hades. Give us, Lord, the desire to look to him and his strength and his righteousness. And Lord, give us the grace to step out in faith. Lord, I pray that you've been speaking to the hearts of those who are listening, of my brothers and sisters, Lord. You're speaking to mine about areas of my own life and areas in their lives that you're calling them to start looking at and say, enough is enough. No longer will we suffer the derision. Lord, give them the strength. Give them the wisdom, the courage. And Lord, Make us a safe place that we can talk about these things and encourage and rebuke and love one another well as we all are on this journey together. Lord, in just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion and remember that very death of your son. I pray, Lord, that you be speaking to us. I pray, Lord, that when we hear your voice, those excuses we make, those fears we have, those obstacles that we place to hearing you speak your love to us, Lord, that you would reveal those to us. Help us, Lord, this morning to truly grasp who we are in light of who you are. And give us the eyes to see that we're in your power we're in your protection, we're in your love, and nothing can hurt us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to begin to celebrate communion here in a moment. Is there anybody here 
who has not, who wants to celebrate communion, has not received one of these cups. If you have not, could you please raise your hand? We'll make sure that you get one. Okay, we got a couple up here. Okay. Once a month, we come together as a family specifically to celebrate this moment. This moment is a time, a moment that we stop and pause to reflect on the truth that Christ is our everything. That Christ has created the way to the Father. That Christ has settled once and for all the sin issue that prevents us to stand before our Creator naked and free. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples around a table and they broke bread together. Taking a piece of bread, he held it up and he said, this is my body given for you. Every time you eat of this, think of me and my death on the cross that would come in just a few hours' time for you. So as we open this top cellophane piece first together, I want us to take communion together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread that you've given us. We thank you especially for the bread of life. Your son Jesus, the one who nourishes us, the one who died for us, the one who we celebrate here today. Lord, may this remind us of what it took and remind us of the gift that was given on the cross that day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Take and eat. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media, at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.